Hello again, everyone. It was, uh, sounds strange, but it was great to meet with uh, many of you on Friday as we uh, had Phil Cox's funeral here on Friday and the church was packed to the rafters. Uh, and as we were reading Romans 1 there, it was a, uh, as Paul heard about their faith, it was wonderful. We had an open mic time at Phil's funeral. And uh, to hear people who aren't Christians talk about the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life is a wonderful testimony. Just as Paul here in Romans heard about their faith and heard about their uh, service of Jesus. So uh, please do keep the Cox family in your prayers as uh, they deal with the loss of their father and so on. Uh, and I'll pray for them now. And, uh, but now I'm also going to pray for our time together in God's Word. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for our brother Phil, who uh, we said farewell to uh, a couple of days ago. But Father, we thank you that uh, he is with you because he is someone who knew and loved the Lord Jesus. Uh, and we pray for the Cox family that uh, you will be continuing to help them uh, as they grieve his loss. And we especially pray for those members of the family who don't know Christ, uh, that the testimony of his funeral on Friday uh, might ring loud and clear to them. But Father, we pray for us now as we turn to your word. Uh, we pray for me that I'll preach it clearly and faithfully. But we pray for all of us that you'll give us ears to listen uh, and hearts to respond in faithful obedience. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today uh, we are starting a new sermon series in what I think is the greatest book ever written, the book of Romans. Uh, so I've been looking forward to this for some time. When I'm asked to give advice to ministers starting at new churches, so like as I was giving Mike advice to start at, uh, at Leppington, one of the things I always say is you must teach the book of Romans every five years. So there's other books of the Bible you may never get to. You may never preach Habakkuk. You may deal with uh, Hosea once in a blue moon, but you must teach the book of Romans every five years. It's that important to the Christian's diet that you have to come back to it time and time and time again. So it's funny because when we met to plan the teaching program for this year, Troy, in his very quiet, calm, understated, yet slightly judgmental way towards me, said, hey, Phil, how, how long has it been since we've uh, studied Romans at, at church? And uh, it was his gentle way of pointing out my failure to keep my own rules and to point out my hypocrisy because it's been nearly 10 years since we've looked at the book of Romans. You mightn't believe that, but it is. So here we are, back to the book of Romans. Uh, now, to help us understand how important Romans is, I want to start with a bit of a history lesson. So I'll give you a bit of a history lecture this morning. Sadly, throughout history, there have been many times where the church has turned away from the gospel. There have been many times throughout history where the church or branches of the church turn away from the gospel, stop trusting in God's word. Sadly, it's happened in the last little while in a very public way in sort of the, the church behind the Anglican Church, the Church of England in England, where the Archbishop of Canterbury has recently turned aside from God's word and led the church uh, away from the scriptures. And so you may have heard about the GAFCON conference that's been happening recently. I went to the last two. I didn't go to this one. It was in Rwanda and I, frankly, I needed a holiday rather than a conference over the last two weeks. Uh, and so, uh, but there uh, it was agreed that sadly the Church of England, that's the church in England, has moved away from the scriptures. But this shouldn't surprise us. It's happened all through history. That the church sadly starts to follow the world rather than the scriptures or loses sight of the gospel. Nearly every time that has happened, 
It has been someone looking at the book of Romans, reading the book of Romans, that has brought people back to Jesus and back to the gospel. So, give you a couple of examples. One of my favourite people from church history is Augustine of Hippo. Keep that off the screen for the moment, Miriam. Augustine of Hippo, and I just like saying his name, but in uh, AD 386, he was sitting in Milan in a garden crying because he had lived a horrible life, a debauched life, and he knew he, 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 he wasn't a good person. And as he was sitting there, there were some kids playing in a garden next to him, and as part of their, their game, they sang a song that had the words, pick up and read. And a friend of his had left a scroll that he'd been reading next to him and he picked it up and read it. Uh, And as he read it, he decided to repent of his sin and become a Christian. Uh, And of course, you know what the scroll was that he picked up. It was the book of Romans. That's what he read. This is what he said. Uh, It's on the screen. He said, No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. That is what reading the book of Romans did for him. And even though you mightn't have heard of him, I'm sure many of you have, but some of you mightn't have heard of Augustine, uh, he became possibly, I think, probably the most important Christian leader and thinker other than the Apostle Paul in all of history. And it was the book of Romans that opened his eyes, that helped him understand the gospel. Uh, Another person, one a bit more famous, 1513, Martin Luther was a German monk. Uh, Now, even though he was incredibly religious, he was incredibly unhappy uh, and he was unhappy because as he read, read the Bible and read about the righteousness of God, he could not see how it was possible for a righteous and holy God to forgive his sin. He could not see how it could work because he knew God is holy and righteous. He was very aware of his own sin and, and he also knew he could never live a life good enough for God. Uh, and so the only outcome he could see was that he was going to be judged by God, as was every other person in the world. Then he started to study the book of Romans. And Luther rediscovered the truth that sadly the church of his time had had lost sight of. Uh, Luther discovered that he was actually right, first of all. He couldn't be good enough for God. That was the first thing he discovered. Going to Mass, saying prayers, all of that, that didn't deal with his sin. The thing he discovered, though, was that he was made right with God, not by works, but by grace, grace alone. And he discovered it was by faith alone, in Christ alone, that he could be made right with God. And Martin Luther then went on to probably become the second most important Christian thinker and leader other than Augustine and the Apostle Paul before him. And again, what was it that drove that? Was understanding this book of Romans that we're studying this term. And I tell you those stories just because I want to say there is no telling what happens when people start to seriously read the book of Romans. Uh, When Augustine and Luther read it, it changed world history. But on a smaller scale, the book of Romans has done that work in millions of people, like you and I, to change us. Uh, I really don't think it's an exaggeration when I say this is the most important document ever written. This is the most important words ever written. Now, Romans is sometimes not an easy book to understand. Uh, So I'm giving that sort of straight up for you. You need to have it open in front of you to be looking at it, so pull it out. Uh, But I want to say to you, as hard as it is sometimes to understand, if you put the hard work in here on a Sunday and in our gospel teams of grappling with it, it is life-changing. Because what the book of Romans is, is Paul driving to the heart of the Christian message. This is the Apostle Paul setting out the heart of the gospel, saying, here it is, do you want to know God? 
Do you want to be right with God? Here is what it's all about. Here are the answers. Martin Luther said this, it's up on the screen. He said, the book of Romans is our soul's daily bread and it can never be read too often or studied too much. That's a pretty big rap, isn't it? Can never be read too often or studied too much. That's how important this part of the Bible is. So let's get into it. Come with me. Romans chapter 1. We'll start the letter together. Verse 1, he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. Now, we're often tempted to just jump over the start of the letter. Uh, it's just Paul introducing himself. But what Paul says here is actually really important because what he's doing is he's setting out his credentials. He, he, Paul had never been to Rome. They'd never met this guy. Someone else had, had, had founded the church there. So his introduction here is sort of telling them, this is why you've got to listen. This is why you've got to listen what I'm about to tell you. And he says three things. First of all, he says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Now that is a massive thing to say, isn't it? Now, some translations translate as servant. I think that's unhelpful. The word is slave because he's making the point, I am not my own. Jesus owns me. I'm not an employee. As a Christian, I don't clock on and off. I am always owned by Jesus. He is my master. I have surrendered my life to the service of Jesus. And straight away, I think there's our first challenge from the book of Romans, isn't it? Do we count ourselves as slaves of Christ Jesus or perhaps are we more like employees who, who clock on and off? It's worth asking because if you know Christ like Paul, we must count ourselves as slaves of our Lord with all that entails. Secondly though, look there, he says, I'm not just a slave, I'm also called to be an apostle. An apostle is like an ambassador, someone who is sent by their master to speak on their behalf. Now again, this is so important to understand this. What Paul is saying here is, I speak for Jesus. So it's like, you know, when the Australian ambassador in, in, in Washington goes into the White House and, and speaks to the president, he represents our country. What he says is the official view of the government of Australia. Well, the Apostle Paul writes this letter as Jesus's ambassador. He is speaking on behalf of the king which is Jesus. His words have the full authority of Jesus. It's really important to think about what that means. Sometimes people, uh, and you can tell someone is trying to lead you astray if they say this, if they say, that's only Paul that says that. They say as if, as if Jesus's words count more than Paul's words. There's a really unhelpful thing in many of our Bibles where they put Jesus's words in red, as if they're extra special. But no, all of the scriptures is God's word and it all comes with the authority of Jesus. So when Paul speaks, it is the word of Jesus. More than that, it means this is no casual letter. As we read this, we're not listening to a wise man's thoughts. As good as it is to read Augustine or Martin Luther or some other Bible commentator, they are just the thoughts of men. These words have the full authority of God. I want to remind us of that, and I try and remind us of that every time we start a new book of the Bible, because we need to appreciate what is happening when we read the Scriptures. When we read the Scriptures, we can take it for granted, or worse still, we can decide which bits we listen to or not. When we read the Bible, or when it's read here at church, God is speaking. God is speaking to us, and we need to remember that, because it should change our attitude to how we listen. So, Paul is a slave of Jesus. He's also an apostle of Jesus. Then, having set out his credentials, if you like, he gives us this wonderful little summary of his message, 
of the gospel. So come with me. He says four things. He says, I've been singled out or set aside for God's good news, or as we often say it, for God's gospel. And so what is the good news? Well, the rest of the letter spells that out, especially the first five chapters. But here he summarises it in these four points. And I want us to go through it really carefully because this is solid gold. So come with me. Keep your brain switched on. First of all, he says, it was a message promised long ago. Look at verse 2. Which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God's message about Jesus is the culmination of everything God has done, in fact, of all of history. It's not like God made the world, sin happened, he tried a few things and he thought, I know what I'll do, we'll try Jesus. That'll be the best answer. That's not how it worked. From before time, God has worked everything towards Jesus. All those prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, who we we read as our Old Testament reading before, all of them who spoke over that thousands of years period, they were all focusing in on, working towards, aiming at the good news about Jesus. And that's the second point. It is the news, look at verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's good news for the world sent us totally in on his son, and that son is Jesus. You cannot know God You cannot be right with God. You cannot know God's forgiveness. You cannot know anything apart from through his son. Who, third point, if we keep going, was a descendant of David according to the flesh. We know he's the son of God, but according to his human nature, Jesus was a real human being, flesh and blood, but he was not just any human being. He was descended from the great King David. And that means, goes back to that first point, He was the fulfilment of the greatest promise of the Old Testament. He was the one descended from David who had come to be the saviour of the world. He was the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed king who God had promised would come to establish his kingdom forever. But then more than that, look at verse 4, and who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus was not just a king, he was not just a man descended from David. When he rose from the dead, or more correctly, when God by his spirit raised Jesus from the dead, God was making a declaration to the world. Once and for all, God was saying, this is my son. Here is the one. Here is the king. Here is the the answer to everything. This is the one I have declared to be the Lord of all. Death cannot hold him down. He is the powerful Lord of the universe. So in that first couple of verses there, just look back over it again. Just from there, chapters, verses 1 to 4, Paul is saying, that's the good news. I feel like that's a summary of everything. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It is about this man, Jesus, who is God's promised king. But more than that, he is God's son. He has God's seal of approval, if you like, and I declare him to be Lord of all. Those are the facts about Jesus. That is the greatest news ever told. That is the truth of the gospel. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't just want you to know that information. He doesn't see his job as just sharing the good news with people, like a newsreader on on the TV. He wants a response. He said, it's my job to invite you to respond the right way to that news. That brings us to our next heading, The response the message demands. Come with me to verses 5 to 7. See, what does it mean for you 
that Jesus is the Christ? What, what does it mean for you that Jesus is God's Son, the Lord of all? What does that require from you? Look at verse 5. He says, We have received grace and apostleship through him, Jesus, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. So you see what he wants? He wants all the nations, that is, not just his Old Testament people, not just the Jews. He wants all people, Romans and Greeks and Paraguayans and Chinese and all the nations, everyone to come to know and obey King Jesus. What other response could there be? Think about it. Kings are meant to be followed. Kings are meant to be obeyed. We've, we've lost this. There's the coronation uh, next week in London. Uh, and I'm sure that there are some Republicans who, who won't be watching and some monarchists who will be watching. In the end, I don't care whether you're a Republican or a monarchist, but the, it doesn't matter what you are, you don't obey King Charles. He, he, he's just sort of someone out there. He, he's, he's got nothing to do with you. That is not the way kings were in the ancient world. That's not the way King Jesus is meant to be. If Jesus is the Lord of the universe, every person from every nation owes him their obedience. But the obedience Jesus demands is different to what we might think. Look there. What's the key phrase in verse 5? What's the key phrase? It's the obedience of faith. Now keep your brain switched on here. What, what does that mean? What does he mean that he wants to bring about the obedience of faith? I'll give you a couple of thoughts on what it could mean. It could mean uh, that the one act of obedience that Jesus calls for is faith. So the one thing he demands is that we believe in the name of Jesus. That's what uh, Jesus says in John 6. We bring it up on the screen. Thanks, Miriam. John 6, 29, Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. See, the Jews are saying, tell us what we've got to do. Tell us what are these good works we've got to do. And Jesus said, this is the one work, that you believe in the one he has sent, which is, of course, Jesus. Sadly, you meet people who want to claim they're obedient to God because they live good lives, because they do acts of charity, they do religious things, but the one thing that God actually demands of them, they won't do. They will not turn and believe in Jesus as the Lord of the, of the universe who died for them and rose for their justification. So sad, isn't it? People want to present their obedience to God as if somehow they can earn God's favour when they just will not do the one thing God actually demands, which is believe in Jesus. That's one option, that the obedience of faith is, is just that the act of obedience is to believe. Uh, another option for what Paul means here is that he wants to see an obedience that flows out of faith. So other translations, if you've got another translation there, it might say this, it say the obedience that comes from faith. And that certainly fits with what Paul is going to say in the rest of the book of Romans, that a true and living faith will always lead to a changed life. It's what the book of James teaches, isn't it? A faith without works is dead. This idea that don't tell me you trust in Jesus if it doesn't lead to obedience. Now, both of those understandings are, are, are true to the rest of Scripture. But I think the point he's making is more subtle. I think he's just making the point you just cannot separate those two things. You just can't separate obedience and faith, faith and obedience. They go together like a, a, a horse and carriage. To, to believe that Jesus is the king is to live a life that now obeys him as your king. Because you don't believe he's the king 
if you don't try and obey him. Later in the letter, Paul is going to explain how it is by faith alone that we're made right with God. It's faith, that response of believing and trusting in Jesus and his message, trusting in him for salvation and eternal life. We're going to see that that is the big message of the book. No one can save themselves by their obedience. And obedience apart from faith is a waste of time. It's only faith in Jesus that saves. But the one we put our faith in is the king. We must remember that. To trust him, to follow him, is to obey him. You can't separate, you can't say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to live for him. It just doesn't work that way. You can't claim to have one without the other. Christopher Ashe, in his little commentary, he puts it like this, it's up on the screen, or it's coming up. He says, the obedience of faith means bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord. I think that captures it. The obedience of faith means bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord. That is what Paul wants to see in every person in the world. It's what he wants to see in us as we read this book of Romans. It's why he wrote it for us. That's what the gospel is meant to produce, bowing our knee in trusting submission to our Lord. Well, let's go on in the passage. Shake yourself off. As I said, it's hard work in the book of Romans. Shake yourself off. Remember at this point, the Apostle Paul had never been to Rome. Do you know when he writes other letters, how, how he talks about his visit to them, whether it's to Corinth or whether it's to Ephesus or that sort of thing? He didn't know these people. He didn't know anything about them, but he'd heard about them, which is actually a wonderful theme of the Scriptures. When people become Christians, the world notices it. Do you notice how many of Paul's letters he starts off, and people heard about your faith. People heard about your love. People heard about your hope. People talk about it because when people are gripped by the gospel, it changes them. And people notice they have different priorities. They have a different focus in life. And so once Paul heard about these Christians in Rome, what did he do? He couldn't help himself. He prayed for them. And in particular, he prayed that he might have the chance to get to Rome to encourage them. Just look from verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his Son, is my witness that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, I would love to go to Rome one day. I've never been to Rome. I would love to go to Rome. If any of you want to buy me a ticket as a gift for your pastor, feel free. Uh, I'd love to see the Colosseum, our slides. I've got a picture of the Colosseum. I'd love to go there. I'd love to look around, all that sort of things. I'd probably rather go to Paris than Rome, actually. But if you want to buy me a ticket to Rome, I'll go. But if you think about it, when Paul says, I want to get to Rome, if he ever got to that Colosseum, would he be there as a tourist? He's going to have a lion chasing him around inside it. That's what's going to happen to him in Rome. You see, he was not wanting to get to Rome for the joy of it. It would be painful for him to get to Rome. He doesn't want to go for himself. He doesn't want to go see the sights. Look at why he wants to go. Look at verse 11. For I want very much to see you, so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. See, Paul did not want to travel to broaden his mind. Paul didn't want to travel as a way of experiencing God's creation. They are, frankly, 
modern middle-class justifications for why we like to jet ourselves around the world. Paul's motivation was purely the gospel and people. Sadly, lots of people skip over these verses. They skip over verses 8 to 15 that I'm focusing on this morning to get to the good stuff of the doctrine from verse 16 and on, and we'll get to that next week. But I think these verses actually just give us a wonderful insight into a godly Christian. They give us a wonderful insight into the godly example of Paul. I love the way, look at the verses, I love the way, what gives him joy? What gives him joy? Hearing about other people's faith in Jesus. I love the way he prays for people constantly, even people he didn't know. I love the way he wants to build them up and encourage them in their faith. But I also love his humility. I love, you see there how he says, you can be an encouragement to me as well. He wants it to be mutual, to go both. It'd be so easy for an apostle to be arrogant and think, I'm God's gift to you. But, But the apostle Paul says, I want to be encouraged by you. I think these verses are just a great example of what it looks like to be a slave of Jesus. Just a great example of what it looks like to be someone who's gripped by the gospel. And perhaps the greatest insight into Paul and how he was gripped by the gospel is down at verses 14 and 15. Come there with me. Because in verse 14, he gives the main reason he wants to go to Rome. Look there. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. The Apostle Paul felt an obligation, a debt, to tell people about Jesus. He felt that he owed everyone the right to hear the good news about Jesus. Whatever their ethnic background, whether they were wise or fools, whatever he thought of them, everyone. Why did he feel that obligation? Well, firstly, go back to verse 1. Jesus had singled him out for the task. There's the first reason. It was his God-given job, but there's more to it than that. I think this is the sort of obligation that a medical researcher might feel if they discovered a cure for cancer. How could you keep that to yourself? This is why we, we, we find it so easy to distrust the big pharmaceutical companies, isn't it? Because they find cures for things and then they want to charge people who can't afford it money for, for the answers. You know, and we go, oh, can't you just give it to those people when you've got something that good? Don't you have an obligation to share it with the world? I remember reading about some researchers in America many years ago who were doing a trials on the, the effect of aspirin on heart disease. And part of the trial was they would give some people with heart disease an aspirin and they'd give other people a placebo, a sugar tablet. And halfway through, they discovered this incredible improvement. Now, don't take this medical advice. It's probably been disproved since then. But halfway through the experiment, they discovered there was such a positive impact on the people who were taking the aspirin, they stopped the experiment so that they could give, the, give it to the other people as well and they could benefit from They felt an obligation to the patients. I think that is the sort of obligation that Paul felt. He had the good news of Jesus. He had the message of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers grace and forgiveness to this world. How could he keep it to himself? I feel that obligation. I want to ask you this morning, do you feel that obligation? I feel it as I walk around our suburb. I feel it if I'm sitting at a cafe and I just watch all these people wandering around, staring at their phones, lost, like like sheep without a shepherd, wandering towards a judgment they don't believe in, but that is real, wandering towards the judgment of God. I feel that obligation. 
Now, of course, we are not apostles. We haven't been specifically commissioned by Jesus with the responsibility of being his ambassador. But we know the same wonderful gospel. We know and believe the same wonderful King and Lord. And so knowing the gospel must create that obligation in us. But of course, if you really know Jesus, it's not an obligation. And you notice, look at verse 15 again. Do you notice how he starts off using the word obligation in verse 14? Do you see how his language changes at the start of verse 15? And he says, actually, I'm eager to share that news with you. Obligation turns to eagerness when you know Jesus. If you know the wonderful message of God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus, how could we ever keep it to ourselves? It must be our greatest joy when other people hear the good news and find salvation in him. There is nothing greater. This is why we never stop praying for non-Christian friends and family to hear about Jesus. This is why we push through the awkwardness barrier to, to tell people about Jesus. This is why we're always ready to give an answer for, for what we believe. This is why we invite people to church or to the life course like Lee was sharing before. This is why every Christian should be equipped to sit and read the Bible with people, to share the reason for their hope. And this is why we're so excited when we send missionaries around the world to Paraguay, the Philippines or wherever else and support them as they go and preach the gospel. We don't do those things out of obligation. We don't do those things because God demands it. We don't do them to impress God. No, we do them because like Paul before us, we know the good news about Jesus. So how could we ever keep it to ourselves? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Romans. And we thank you for the way in it the Apostle Paul has set out for us the wonderful riches of the gospel. And we pray for our studies together here at church and in our gospel teams over the next term that we will grapple anew with the wonderful news of the gospel and we will be reminded again of these wonderful truths or for some of us come to know them for the first time. But today, Father, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you that we have come to know it and we pray that like Paul, we might be eager to share it with anyone and everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.